0: Like Audrey just said, this is the first week of Advent, the time of year where the church traditionally enters into the ancient story of Israel and their longing and their hope and their expectation for a coming Messiah, a Savior who would rescue them. And the other night I was reading a classic Christmas poem to my daughter. It's one that everybody in here would recognize, and it's about modern day times. It's not about Jesus. But as I was reading it to her, I thought, what would this poem be like if it was written about Jesus, about the day that he was actually born. And so I thought, you know, let's have a little bit of fun. I'll regale you with my own version. Again, I think you'll recognize it. "'Twas the night before the first Christmas, and all through the world, not a creature was speaking some now common words. Human rights was a concept which no one had thought, science, a discipline which no one had taught, that victims should be cared for, not trampled or tossed, Freedom and equality, those were ideals no one bought. Sexual consent was a value, never heard. Humility, advice, and kindness, a slur. But into that world, a true light was born. He spoke into darkness, injustice was torn. What was once right was now wrong. What was once weak was now strong. He came as a servant, he left as a king, turned the world upside down, yes, every Single thing, you see, Christmas Day was a revolution. It quite literally turned the world upside down. But sometimes we aren't even aware of the fact. A little parable might illustrate the point. There was once two fish swimming through the ocean, and this old, wizened fish comes alongside these two younger fish, and he looks at them and he says, "How's the water, boys?" And they kind of look at him curiously, quizzically. They don't know how to respond. And finally, the old fish swims away. And one young fish says to the other young fish, what the heck is water? You see, if you spend your whole life in water, it's really easy to forget that water even exists, to not even know what you're swimming in. And in many ways, we're all a lot like fish. Fish. There's a lot of things that we take for granted in our life, and our world, that we just take as givens. They're the water that we swim in, so we can't even see it. We don't even know it's there, but I assure you, it's there. Specifically this morning, I want to look at our values, our moral intuition You see, we're all swimming in the same water. We are all sharing so many values and moral intuitions. We accept them as givens, but the question is, have they always been givens? Is this the way that it's always been? I mean, I don't think anyone would deny right now seems to be one of the most divided times in our history, and yet I find this remarkable. We are remarkably unified on some core central values. We're all swimming in the same water. There's a great book by an Australian writer named Glenn Scrivener, and he looks at seven of these different values and he explores where they came from. But let me just put four of them on the screen that I want to talk about this morning. These are four values that you would be hard pressed to find someone who outright denied any one of these. This is the water that we swim in. This is our moral intuition, our, our water. So let's keep going. Equality. We believe in the equal moral status of every member of the human family, no matter their rank, race, religion, gender, or sexuality. Compassion. We believe a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. Consent. We believe that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others. Freedom. We believe that persons are not property and that each of us should have control or be in control of our own lives kind of interesting, isn't it? Again, you'd be really hard pressed to find anybody who denies those values. Maybe we would nuance them. Maybe we would think that we should pursue them in different ways. But the fundamental idea that those are good things we all share. It's the water that we walk in, that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. These are just things that we take for granted. But again, the fundamental question is this. Has it always been that way? Is this just the water that humans have swam in for all of human history? Uh, Today, I've, I've, I've got a theory I wanna run past you, and it's this. If I put you into a time machine and I took you to the night before Christmas and you stepped out of that time machine you would find yourself in a world that you do not understand. You would find yourself around people whose moral intuitions are almost the exact opposite of your own. You would find yourself in a world that you find incomprehensible because the water they're swimming in, you can't even breathe in. It wouldn't make sense. And here's why that's the case. Because Christmas Day, Jesus' birth, began a revolution that quite literally Turned the world upside down, that quite literally changed our values from the bottom up, such that people today, this revolution's been so successful, such that people today, whether or not they follow Jesus, whether or not they're interested in Jesus, they are all swimming in the water that Jesus created. The Apostle John got this. He opens up his gospel not with stories of angels and Mary and Joseph. His Christmas story is a little more abstract, but, but catch what he says because it's relevant. John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word. Now, now the Word is John's word for Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. So, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life, catch this, was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John's point is this. When Jesus came into the world, it was shrouded in darkness. They, they were swimming in moral water, values, waters that, that again, we would not comprehend because it was total darkness, but that light came into the world and that light, it shined into the darkness and it turned everything upside down. I wanna be really clear. I'm saying that in the ancient world, values like equality, compassion, consent, and freedom, they were not cherished. They were not valued. In fact, quite the opposite was expected. And the only reasonable explanation for how the world so dramatically changed is Christmas Day. Let me show you. We'll start with equality. So again, from Glenn Scrivener's book, equality. We believe in the equal moral status of every member of the human family, no matter their rank, race, religion, gender, or sexuality. Again, we take this for granted. But if you stepped out of that time machine into the ancient world, would everybody there agree with you that that's a true statement? Well, you have to understand this. The ancient world was profoundly shaped by two thinkers, Plato and Aristotle. And Plato and Aristotle, they had incredibly profound ethics. They'd worked out profound systems of politics and political thought. But part of that thought, part of what they believed in the water in which everyone swam as a result, was that the world, inside of our world, uh, inequality was woven into the fabric of the world. In fact, they believed that people were born into a hierarchy of being. Some people were born higher, and thus they were more valuable. And some people were born lower, and thus they were less valuable. Don't take my word for it. This is what Aristotle said in his book Politics. For that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. Now check this out. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection. Others for rule. From the moment, from the moment you were born, you were either made to be a slave or to be a ruler. Inequality was literally woven into the fabric of the world. That's how they saw it. And it wasn't just in terms of masters and slaves. It was also in terms of gender and race. Again, let's just check out what Aristotle said about women. These are words he used to describe women. Immature, monstrous, deficient, deformed men. I mean, you, you almost laugh at it because it's so offensively stupid, right? Right? That's why we kind of laugh at it. And yet, if you stepped out of your time machine into the night before Christmas, this was the water everyone swam in. Inequality was woven into the fabric of their reality. And it wasn't just gender. It was race. Both Plato and Aristotle talked about superior races and inferior races. Now, if you walked up to one of these people on the night before Christmas and you tried to say to them, hey, all humans are created equal, we should all have human rights, they would look at you like a crazy person, they would scratch their head, and then they'd say, you must not have eyes. But have you looked at reality? Inequality is everywhere. Some people are born tall, some people are born short, some people are born strong, others are born physically weak, some people are born more intelligent, others are not. Inequality is everywhere. Where did you get the idea, this insane idea, that everybody is equal? You can't observe it. You can't find it with logic. You can't get there from science. Where did this come from? And that's how they thought. They came to their conclusions based on observations. And it led them to things like this. Aristotle, again, he wrote, And indeed, the use made of slaves and of tame animals isn't very different. For both, with their bodies, minister to the needs of life. Do you agree with that statement? That a slave and an animal are really no different, serving the same needs. Or do you find this part in your heart that cries out and says, no, that's wrong, that's evil, that's unjust. Animals and humans, they are not the same thing. If that's what you feel, that's what I feel. That is the moral intuition of Jesus bubbling up inside of you. You only feel that way because you're swimming in the water that Jesus gave us, because you're swimming in the values that Jesus gave us. The world has not always been this way. That was the water of the ancient world, and we do not live in that world any longer for a single reason, the revolution of Jesus's birth. You see, Jesus is the one who gave us equality. Uh, There's a very famous atheist philosopher named Yuval Harari. He's a best-selling author. And he wants human rights and he wants human equality, but he's tried to wrestle with the question of how do I make sense of that without God? Let's just read what he wrote. He said this, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights are just a story that we've invented. They're not an objective reality. In other words, you can't observe it, you can't science your way to it, you can't logic your way to it. They're not a biological fact about Homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut him open, look inside, you'll find the heart, the kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you aren't gonna find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread over the last few centuries. And despite being an atheist, He understands exactly where those stories came from. He continues and writes this. The Americans got the idea of equality from science, from logic? No, from Christianity, which argues that every person has a divinely created soul and that all souls are equal before God. However, if we don't believe in the Christian myths about God, creation, and souls, what does it mean that all people are, quote, unquote, equal? You see, the problem He's trying to be really, really honest. You can't get to human rights By observation, it comes from somewhere else. And he's very clear about where human rights and human equality came from. It comes from the stories of Jesus. You see, Jesus was a wandering rabbi who taught people that all humans were made in the image of God, and therefore they had an equal status before God. They were bestowed and imbued with dignity, worth, and value, every single one of them. But he didn't just teach it, he lived it. He took care of the very people that Plato and Aristotle said were worthless were unequal, didn't deserve attention. When he met women, he called them to come and be his disciples. He shared meals with people of different races. When people tried to push the children away because in the ancient world, children were not valued, he said, bring the children to me. He held babies. When he met the sick, he didn't discard them, he touched them, he healed them. Jesus' life taught equality. The apostle Paul, he wrote this in his letter to The Philippians, Jesus, being in the very nature God, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's go back to that last slide. You see, the apostle Paul, he grew up in Tarsus. This was a very metropolitan Roman city. And so that meant that he grew up reading Plato and Aristotle, which means that he knows what Plato and Aristotle taught about slaves. They are unequal. They are worthless. They are no better than animals. And so now you can begin to understand the radical statement that he makes in this letter to people who all understood the exact same thing, because they were swimming in the waters of the ancient world, not the modern world. What does he say Jesus became when he came to earth? He He became a slave. The greatest, most transcendent being in the universe became what Plato and Aristotle and everyone in the ancient world said had no worth. There's only one clear message. If he became a slave, slaves, the lowest of the low, they have supreme value before the living God because he became one of them. Jesus taught us equality. Equality. He didn't stop there. And the next verse, Paul says that he died, he even died a death on a cross. The cross was called the slave's death in the Roman world. And if you look at nature, what do you learn? You learn the survival of the fittest, right? The strongest survive and the weakest die off. But do you see what the cross does? It upends nature. Because now the strongest and the fittest, Jesus, who's God, has laid down his life for the sake of of the weakest, you and me. And that tells us again, God's love tells us, if the greatest will lay down his life for the weakest, all people have value and worth before him. See, the Christian story is a story of transcendent love, which tells everyone in a world where they thought everything was unequal, no, they are all equal in the eyes of God because he loves them all equally. Do you know the waters that you're swimming in? If you believe in human equality, if you believe in human rights, do you understand that that's not a given? The water you're swimming, that aquarium you're in, Jesus filled it up. It wasn't there before. The night before Christmas would have been darkened. No same person, no sexual minority, no racial minority, no one who has disabilities, no one would go back to that word, world because they would have been considered worthless. But now we get to live in this world where Jesus has filled up the tank and we realize, no, all humans are equal, created in God's image. He's the one who put the water in. He's given us the water that we breathe in, the water that we swim in. That's where our values come from. He he didn't just teach us that. He taught us several other values. And if I had time, I'd spend as much time on each one of these, but I don't. So we'll do a lightning round. Uh, We'll go through the remaining three. Um, Jesus was the one who taught us compassion. We believe a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. Again, you step out of your time machine, and what would you find? Well, you'd find a world where people believe that compassion was weakness, they would have called it feminine weakness. And we already know what they thought about women. Beyond that, they would have thought about humility and kindness as a vice, again, as another form of weakness. And they refused to show compassion because it was not a value. In fact, in the ancient Roman world, if you had a baby that you didn't want to have, maybe it was a little girl and you didn't want a girl, or maybe it was a baby that had deformities, they would take those babies, they would carry them to the town's trash dump and throw the babies onto the dump. Now, this isn't like modern day Colombia, where the dumps off in some place where no one sees it. Their trash dumps were smack in the middle of their cities. And so this means that effectively people are walking by every day, their trash dumps, and they're hearing babies crying inside of the trash dump. And they're just thinking, nothing to see here. This is totally normal. I have no responsibility to that child. I have no responsibility to that baby. Jesus taught a different way. In Matthew 25, Jesus said to his disciples, However, you treat the least of these the infants thrown on the trash dump, the slaves who were ignored and put on the bottom of society, women, minorities, whatever it was. He said, However, you treat the least of these, that's how you treat me, and you will be judged by it. Jesus is the one who taught us compassion. He held babies. He welcomed the children. He welcomed women. He said, no, we must show compassion. If you step out of the time machine to the ancient world, you will not value compassion. Compassion was not a value. If you value compassion now, you are swimming in the waters of Jesus. Whether you want anything to do with him, you are swimming and the waters that Jesus gave us. He didn't just give us compassion, he also gave us consent. We believe that the powerful have no right to force themselves on others. Again, step out of the time machine. This would not have been the case in the ancient world. They believed that men had the right to do whatever they wanted to do to other people women and women's bodies were viewed as objects. They were viewed as property and men had the right to use them however they liked. It wasn't just women. This is also true of young boys. They had the right to do whatever they wanted. In fact, it was viewed as a moral responsibility, the right thing to do. But Jesus comes along and he teaches a radically different sex ethic. He says, no, man, you can't have sex with whoever you want to have sex with. He, he says, no, sex is only inside of the covenant of marriage between two people That's the only place. He condemns sexual abuse. He goes and he reaches out to women who had been sexually abused and welcomes them into his kingdom. You see, in the ancient world, there was no such word as consent. Consent to what? You're an object. I can do whatever I want. Jesus is the one who invented the idea of consent. Not just that, he's the one who invented the idea of abuse because you can't abuse someone who's worthless, but if they are supremely full of worth, that person can be abused. And who taught us that? That was Jesus. Jesus gave us consent. Do you know the waters that you're swimming in? Last one, freedom. We believe that persons are not property and that each of us should be in control of our own lives. Again, in the ancient world, no one thought this. People were born to be rulers, people were born to be slaves. No one had the freedom except for the rulers to order their own lives. Everybody else was expected to just follow along, to do whatever the rulers said. But Jesus talks to his disciples one day and he says, you know how the Gentiles do it. They lord it over one another, but not so amongst you. The greatest of you shall be a servant. This was the call of Jesus, not to be lords who were commanding everybody else what to do, but to be servants, serving one another. The Apostle Paul in Romans 14 says that Christians must persuade others about Jesus. He rejects coercion. You see, God and Jesus value freedom so much that he allows us to even rebel against him. He allows us to even reject him. He is the one who gave us the value of freedom. If you step out of that time machine into that ancient world, you would find a world that wanted nothing to do with equality, consent, compassion, or freedom. That would have been nonsense to them. But if those are things that you value right now that you just take for granted as givens in your current reality, it's because you live downstream from Jesus. It's because you're swimming in the water that he created. Without him, the aquarium was empty. He's the one who filled it up. Now, I know what people will say, and they are right. They will say, but the church has not always lived up to these values. The church has promoted inequality, misogyny, racism, abuse, coercion. And so none of this is true, right? This doesn't make any sense. And I would say this, no, you're right. And the right response from the church is to confess those things and to ask for forgiveness for those things, because we are not living up to the ethic of Jesus, what he's called us to. But I also want you to note this, the best critiques of the church are rooted in Jesus's moral intuition, We can critique the church for promoting inequality because Jesus taught us equality. We can critique the church for indifference towards the poor and the needy because Jesus taught us compassion. We can critique the church for coercion or abuse because Jesus is the one who taught us consent and freedom. You see, If you're not following Jesus, or if you're just curious about Jesus, and you're not sure this makes sense, what I want you to understand is that you are already swimming in the waters that he created. And if you value freedom and consent and compassion and equality, and you want to live that out, there's no better way to live that out than walking with the very one who invented it. But if you sever yourself from him, if you say Jesus has no place in the public square, You are draining the water out of the aquarium. You are draining the very water that you live in. No, Jesus invites us all to partake in his values, in his moral intuition. He knows that we all fall short, which is why he forgives us when we do, but he doesn't stop there. He gives us the gift of his spirit so that through his spirit's power, We can live out these values together in our life. He says, I don't just want you to swim in this water. I want you to thrive in this water. And so I can make you new to love these things and to cherish these things and to walk in these things. This is part of why we do communion. You see, communion and the sacraments are a way of remembering Jesus's story. It's a way of saying, Jesus, you really are the water that I swim in. You really are the air that I breathe. You really are like this bread and this wine. You are the sustenance that gives me life. And I want to live in that story. I want to live in your values. I want to live in your kingdom. I want to thrive there. That's what we do when we take communion. We enter into the story of Jesus and we say, God, would you make your story my story? I wanna invite you to live in that story, to give your trust to Jesus, to say, Jesus, I trust you, I love you, and I want to live in that story. And if you do that, I want you to come and take communion with us today. On the night that Jesus was crucified as a slave on a cross, dying the slave's death, the fittest for the weakest, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, the strongest, given and broken for you. And then he took wine and poured it into a cup and he said this is my blood of the new covenant he said every time that we eat this bread and drink this wine we should do so in remembrance of him entering back into his story his reality we're gonna do communion a little differently than we've done it here in the past. Um, Rather than having the little things in your hand, I wanna invite you to come forward. And please do come forward, don't go backwards. And up here at the stations, there'll be people here to serve you. They'll have bread in one hand and wine in the other hand. Just rip off a piece of bread and dip it into the wine. And then they'll give you a little blessing. You don't need to say anything back. If you don't want wine, uh, there's grape juice on the stool in front of them. If you need a gluten-free option, that's also on the stool as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you today as people who have fallen short of those values. We know that equality and compassion and consent and freedom, that these are good and beautiful things that you gave us, that you taught us, that people did not understand apart from you, and yet we all fall short in our own ways. We try to coerce others, we try to use others, we treat people like they are worthless than we are. We treat them with unkindness and indifference and so Jesus, I pray that you would forgive us and not merely that you would forgive our sins but that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can breathe you as our air so that you would be the sustenance in our life so that you would be the water in which we breathe and live and have our beings. Jesus, we praise you, we worship you No one wants to go back to the night before Christmas. Thank you for the gift of your revolutionary love. It's your name that we pray, amen. Come forward, take an end.